Welcome to another edition of the South Dakota Game Fish and Parks Podcast and Blast. I'm your host, friend, confidant, guide, whatever, Chris Hall. And I'm super pumped to be here on this beautiful November week. Coming off one of those early, miserable cold snaps, 8 degrees last Friday. Everyone's crabby because our furnaces have been going full bore, but hey, it looks like we're coming out of it, and I couldn't be more excited. Deer season's in full swing, running activity is going strong. I don't have a deer tag, not a one, but my 10-year-old daughter does, and I'm not sure if she's ready to hunt because she's too busy doing other 10-year-old girl stuff. We're going to spend some time on a side hill and a blind and spend some quality time QT. Got a couple of good chats coming up. We're going to get a little science on you and talk to GFP biologist-type person Chad Switzer about deer. And uh, Thea Miller-Ryan from the Sioux Falls Outdoor Campus has got some good stuff behind that. And other than that, let's get this show on the road. This program is brought to you by you, the hunters and anglers who uh, buy licenses and allow South Dakota Game Fishing Parks to do the things that they do. So let's get started. I've been down flying just past by without saying hi to me. Just pass by without saying bye to me. Yeah. Sitting here today with me is one of Nebraska's finest, the pride of Hay Springs, Nebraska. <laughs> or where where are you from, Switzer? Where is Hay Springs? Uh, I I think it's like kind of towards Shadron somewhere. I, I know where Hay Springs is. I'm <laughs> originally from Clearwater, Nebraska. Clearwater, Nebraska. Chad Switzer. He's my second favorite corn husker because my sister-in-law is my favorite. I didn't know uh, if it was Larry the Cable Guy. <laughs> no, I've never met him. So, um, Switzer is South Dakota Game Fish and Parks. What's your title? Wildlife Chad? Program Administrator. Wildlife Program Administrator. Man, that sounds official. Uh, and I know you've been dealing a lot with deer, Switz, uh, and you deal with all things big game and other critters. But for the past few months, everybody has had their minds on deer. But now that deer seasons are actually rolling, I want to talk about deer. Like the actual deer. Not licenses of deer and not anything else, but I want to talk about actual deer. First, uh, this time of year, people are starting to see lots of deer. They're moving around. Crops are out. Whatever. Uh, Deer hunters and landowners do a pretty good job of keeping an eye on deer in their area. Can you talk a little bit about how the department goes about the process of deciding how many licenses go into each county? Yeah, that's a great question, Chris. Uh, You know, our department takes pride in in collecting scientific data. We use that information, whether it's biological data, harvest data, public public opinion survey information, uh, to help us uh, in in putting forth recommendations and working with our commission on, on recommendations. But biological data, I mean, we're a science driven uh, department. Uh, we have great biologists and staff in the field that do good things. So from a deer perspective, we, we do a lot of uh, information that's collected from aerial surveys. Uh, we do some spotlight surveys in the Black Hills. <clears throat> Herd composition surveys we do every fall across the state to determine what's out there uh, from a, a buck to doe to, to fawn uh, ratio. Uh, reproduction surveys. And then lately, a lot of uh, time and money has been invested in survival monitoring. So not going to dive down into the weeds on a lot of this, but it, it's a great question and an important one. I think that our, our, you know, those folks listening here should be aware of. So you know, the biological data, the hunter harvest stuff, uh, all of that stuff is 
right now integrated or inputted into an integrated population model. Uh, it's a modeling system that helps us kind of determine where these populations might be going. Are they inclining or increasing? Are they remaining stable? Are they decreasing because of whatever reason? And so we, we, and we'll get into this here a little later on, on radio callers and, mm-hmm. and the use of that information. But, uh, you know, so we're, we're doing this all across, well, not all across the state, but we have what we call DAUs or data analysis yep. units. Okay. So a DAU is a, a geographic area. So think where you're from, Chris, up in the Northeast part mm-hmm. of the state, the Prairie Coteau. It's a, a unique landscape that has its own unique weather patterns, right? right. <laughs> yeah. You get that uh, right. You know, the landscape is a little different than you just go to the west or south. So we kind of group this information and analyze data on, on deer within these DAUs. Uh, so in addition to that, you know, we have the harvest data, social data that we get not only from landowners, uh, our hunters and the general public, our department staff are obviously involved in this process. And any public opinion survey information uh, that we have is used to formulate department recommendations. So when all of this information from all these biological surveys are completed they're shared summarized and shared with our field staff uh, field staff within our four regions we have four regions within the state field wildlife division they uh, develop recommendations at the regional level uh, probably one of the first and most important things at the beginning of that process is when that information is shared that local conservation officer uh, other staff we want to define from a qualitative perspective, where do we want that population to go? I mean, is it it low and we want to drastically increase that population? Do we want to maintain it? Are we having some crop depredation or other complaints from landowners? Mm -hmm. You know, landowners are an important uh, role in wildlife management and they got to be considered in this process. So we go through that and, and once staff have a time and opportunity to do that, uh, they develop a regional recommendation that is then shared with what we call our commission recommendation and development group. Uh, it's a variety of staff that get together. Uh, we we crit- critique ourselves pretty hard. We ask a lot of hard questions. Uh, we want to make sure we're doing the best thing we can from a wildlife standpoint, yet provide the highest recreational opportunity we can for our hunters, yet maintain or try to achieve what we want to what we want to achieve from that population objective standpoint. And then finally, that, the, that, rec- that group uh, provides a recommendation to our department secretary, wildlife division directors. And then ultimately, <clears throat> that department recommendation is presented to our GFMP commission. They're the, de- <laughs> they're the decision maker on this, right. and, and they rely heavily on our department staff to, to do that, and it goes through their process, and any changes that the commission might propose goes out for a 30-day public comment period, and and uh, they can take final action on what was proposed, modify their proposal within the scope of that proposal, and and so forth. So it's a it's a process that starts several months in advance uh, prior to taking anything to our commission. Right. I think uh, I think our sportsmen and women are pretty pretty tuned in to like how we do our pheasant brood count brood count route. Um. I've never got to go along on any of the deer stuff. I, I guess I have. I've done some deer collaring and stuff. Just briefly give me, you know, you're, you're saying the aerial counts. When are you doing those and what are you doing? You're not just flying around going, there's a deer, there's a deer, there's a deer. I mean, and I know it's only a part of it, but give me give me some, you know, just 
Yep. So our aerial surveys is uh, we identify a geographic area, one of those DAUs, we try to fly one or two of those each year. Now, we may not fly them because those surveys require uh, a prescription uh, of, you know, certain snow amount cover. of snow cover, uh, other weather conditions, uh, things come into play. So like, I believe the last two years, I don't know if we've done an aerial mm-hmm. survey. Maybe we did two years ago, but... Uh, so we strategically fly <clears throat> selected DAUs, and that's just another important piece of data that's put into those sure. those population models to help us predict where those populations may or may not be going. Sure, you fly it as like a grid or something. And yep, then we've got we got transects established, and yeah. And then I would say the same thing, like with the the spotlighting thing, kind of the same thing. You've got certain routes that you drive. And Spotlights we have. It's a uh, a survey methodology that was developed after research that was conducted with a student at SDSU. So we have designated transects that we drive and spotlight within a prescribed time period and other survey protocol. Right. And, and we're able to uh, provide an estimate for, I believe it's just whitetails in the Black Hills, but it's sure. a great, great another tool for us to, to follow those populations. Cool. So I got a call, I think it was on the first or second day of the bow season from a buddy, and it was early. And he was out hunting and saw a doe with a collar on it. Wanted to know if it was okay for his kid to shoot it. What's up with the jewelry on these deer? And, and now, especially at this time of year, we start seeing even some pictures, you know, and, and people calling in and, and sending emails about does with collars on them. Uh, how many of those kind of studies do we have going on, and what are we looking at? For those, yeah, so, kind of stuff? you know, our radio collars, uh, we were deploying those on both whitetail and mule deer within certain parts of the state on both juvenile and adult deer and both male and female, mostly female because that's where we're, you know, that, that's what drives our populations is mm-hmm. our, our female. Right. Uh, so, <clears throat> you know, and that information is plugged into that, that IPM, that integrated population right. model. Uh, so, yeah, radio collared deer, they are not restricted from harvest. Uh, you know, we actually want to learn what that proportion of mortality of deer is attributed to mm-hmm. hunter harvest. Uh, sure. We know deer die of several things, and, and hunters hunting is one of those mortalities. Uh, you know, we know some people may target radio collared deer because they have a piece of jewelry on their on their neck, and, and others might choose not to harvest that deer because right. it's radio marked, you know. So it's difficult for us to determine is there a bias associated with that sure. hunter-harvest aspect yeah, of that. But, you know, <clears throat> there's been some literature out there, but I think overall we just assume it's a wash given, you know, those two different right. things we just talked about. And, uh, yeah, so they're, they're available for harvest, and, and it's important information for our department. We've done some videos and some outreach on on the deer calling, but just talk real briefly about that process, how how we're catching deer out on the prairie. Yeah, so we uh, <clears throat> believe it or not, our department does not own any helicopters. Yeah, isn't that amazing? <laughs> we don't. Uh, so we <laughs> we work with uh, there's several companies within the U.S. here that uh, provide these types of services. Uh, we hire companies to come in with our 44 helicopters. Uh, we work closely on obtaining landowner permission mm-hmm. and putting maps together where we can and cannot capture deer. And they rocket net these deer. Uh, they either radio mark them in the field or some of the adult females. We have long line back to a processing site that we've set up where we do some ultrasound work on those deer to try to gather some of that reproductive information. How many right. of those does have a just a single fawn, two fawns? Can we find three fawns within them? Right. <clears throat> Draw blood work and things like that. And then uh, we fly uh, those uh, DAUs that we're monitoring survival. Mm-hmm. We fly those once a month to get monthly survival rates. 
Yeah, and that's that's pretty cool stuff. If if any uh, listeners uh, want to see kind of what goes in on that, go to our uh, GFP uh, YouTube page. We've got a couple videos. One on you know using the rocket nets on some other critters, but the deer specifically. It's, yeah. That's cool stuff. Yes, it it's pretty neat. Um, talk a little bit more about the hunter harvest surveys. I know we get complaints and get because people get emails and survey cards and it's never ending and we should save our money and you know wasted so much money on postage and everything else but where in the hierarchy of importance of all this information that we get the hunter harvest surveys just just talk about how those are utilized in in the importance of those yeah i mean that's a great question we hear a lot of that not not a lot but we do hear that mm-hmm. from our hunters uh you know I'll start off right off the bat here with that. We have great uh, response rates from our hunters on this. And I know some hunters probably get more survey cards or emails from our department than others. But, you know, I would say on average, on average, we probably get a 70 to 80% return rate on that. And, you know, you visit with other states and they're like, gosh, how do you get hunters to cooperate like that? And and the cooperation is is, uh, greatly appreciated. And, you know, you look at hunter harvest data, it's it's the largest and probably most long-term data set uh we as wildlife managers have to evaluate our our deer seasons and and the other seasons we have you know we can look at trend in in success rate whether it's by hunter success rate or a specific tag for a license uh you know and we we know some things come into play with hunter success whether it's you know you were sick and you couldn't make it out or or some weather dependent things came into play there but uh you know it's it's used uh, we're using additional information now you know we're maybe not relying as much on this as we did in the past but i want to reiterate it's a very critical component to the information we use uh you know we look at you know satisfaction from our hunters right. how satisfied are they with their with their hunting experience and when we you know include all that in conjunction with our survival data and other other pieces of information it's helpful from a you know re- reconstructing a, a population estimate so right cool um what else we got going on as far as deer population estimate survey studies anything you know population uh the the monitoring uh, the radio collaring is is probably our biggest thing right now with deer we are going to be starting a a new research project up in the northwest part of the state uh, utilizing some gps uh, radio collars to provide some additional information on you know habitat use uh, movements and some things like that Mm -hmm. uh, with both whitetail and mule deer so we're pretty excited about that Uh, also going to be looking at the use of uh of uh game cameras to help you know there's been some states that have evaluated game cameras and their use in in predicting population uh estimates okay so we're going to be looking at that in regards to to elk and deer uh out in the western part of the state and i think some of that might include the black hills but you know are there some other ways maybe less invasive ways maybe more economical ways that we can monitor our population so cool yeah that's really cool yeah yeah, I'm glad you brought up mule deer because until I moved to Pier, I'd never even thought about hunting mule deer. Um, you know, I saw, saw some on vacation at Custer State Park when I was a kid, and you know, out in the Badlands and on the long drive from Siston to Custer, it's <laughs> you cross the river, and all of a sudden there's these different looking deer. Never really thought about much of it, but they really are an iconic species of the West. What what's the mule deer population doing? In, in South Dakota, and maybe even in general. Yeah. No, mule deer are a, they're a majestic animal. They, 
They're just a neat critter. They got a different behavior. They, they live in. Over. They just I live in them. some great landscapes. They're just it's right. they're they're a fun critter to hunt. Just to even watch. I just right. love watching mule deer. Uh, they're pretty neat. So, you know, I I believe in all of our units right now. Our our goals are to increase, increase. mule deer uh, in in most, if not all, of our units. Uh, you know, we've cut back harvest on mule deer, in particular antlerless mule deer. Uh, we heard that loud and clear from our landowners out west, though, too. That yep, we did, and we made some modifications to those, you know, those statewide analyst right. licenses, yeah. uh, archery and muzzleloader. We've really restricted some of the areas within the state that are right. open to analyst harvest, uh, which, you know, I, the, the complexity of our license types uh, is a little bit of a challenge <laughs> at times to mm-hmm. try to try to manage harvest on those analyst deer, but I, I think we're using a pretty good uh, set of tools right now to do that is it perfect mm-hmm. it probably is not uh, there might be some ways we can make that a little bit better but I, I think overall i mean we we have really we have significantly reduced harvest on our analyst deer you know causes of decline i mean you know it's not just noticeable in in south dakota i mean all the western states that have mule deer are kind of scratching their heads you know wondering what the heck's going on uh, suspected causes could could be uh habit you know habitat fragmentation loss of habitat you know winter survival uh they you know i don't know if they're as tough getting through a, a bad winter as white tails might be right. you look back in uh kind of hard to remember the years now but i think it was 09 and 10 10 11 maybe 11 and 12 yeah i mean we had three consecutive winters there that were not real right. conducive for deer to survive through the winter you even look back at at last winter uh, it gets into into march and you think by the time a deer makes it to march they they got her they got her whipped and they're going to be okay but that's probably their most vulnerable time uh they go through that long winter and expend all the all that energy and their their body and fat reserves and and we we documented some deer tipping over last march up in the, right. the western part of the state they just they took all they could and you know predation you know we we kind of documented some low survival on on fawns uh with some of our mule deer studies so there's you know, there's some predation effects here you know energy development in some parts of our state may or may not be attributing to that it's mm-hmm. probably not as intense as it, as it is in some of those other western states but you know like i said earlier i think over the last five years we've made some some positive changes to our our uh, licensing right. and, and reducing that harvest from mule deer and we're, we're seeing them right. respond right. maybe some of them not as fast as we'd like to see them but uh right. We'll get them there. Good. Yeah, they tip me over. I love hunting them. I love watching them. <clears throat> By far my favorite critter. So let's shift let's shift gears a little bit, Switch, and, and and talk about something that has moved a little bit to the more of the forefront of deer and deer management, not just in South Dakota, but and not even just the West, but just kind of across the country. Um, probably something that people out west have heard about and did a little bit of research in some of our hunters and stuff but maybe on the eastern side of the state haven't really been too concerned about it and that's cwd so switz what is cwd and don't get all sciencey on me because you know you're going to lose me and if i fall asleep this podcast is really going to struggle unless you can sing or something for me so we'll save the singing until later <laughs> right <laughs> uh, so cwd what is it you know it stands for chronic wasting disease uh cwd it's a uh, uh, transmissible spongiform encephalopathy. Say that See, real fast. There you go. Sciencey. Yeah. Uh, it's a it's a TSE. So, you know, it's found in South Dakota here in whitetail, mule deer, and elk. Uh, other TSEs that our audience might be familiar with would be scrapies and sheep. 
uh, mad cow disease and obviously cattle, and Creutzfeldt uh, Jakob disease in humans. Uh, so, so what is a TSC? What is chronic wasting disease? Right. So it's a, it's an abnormal form of a of a protein that's that's called uh, it's caused by a, a prion. That that's what it is. It's an abnormal protein within that individual's body, and that prion affects, you know, the host by converting normal cellular proteins to an abnormal form. Okay, which uh, is primarily found within the, the central nervous system. Of, of the animal sure. uh, can be found in the lymph nodes and, and possibly other parts of that infected body. So uh, we'll probably get into some more stuff here on CWD, right. but that's that's what it is. So so where did where to come from? I mean, how long has it been around? Where to come from? Yeah, I don't know if anybody can answer that. Uh, we don't exactly know where it came from uh, or how long it's been in the natural environment. Uh, but CWD was discovered, uh, I believe, it was nineteen sixty seven in a Colorado Division of Wildlife captive deer facility in northern Colorado is where it was kind of confirmed and it wasn't for maybe another five or ten years after that that it was classified as a a TSE sure Uh, but that's kind of when it became available to the scientific community sure when uh, when was it discovered in South Dakota you know CWD in South Dakota was discovered in in some captive elk uh, facilities here in 1997 and 98 and then uh, it was found in our free roaming wild populations. It was found in white-tailed deer uh, in Fall River County uh, during the 2001 uh, deer hunting season. That's when we first found it here. And, and CWD, has it been discovered in all the states? I mean, at least the contiguous states? or, or? It, it has not been confirmed in all. It's, uh, and this kind of changes... Uh, yearly, monthly, sometimes weekly, but it's been found or confirmed in 23 states and in three Canadian provinces now. So mostly Western states, or is it scattered? No, no it's scattered all across. Hmm. Yeah. Um, what you know, you, know, you think of uh, you got a sick critter. You know, uh, I was always told, you know, you see a skunk in the middle of the day, it's got rabies. Got rabies you know, yeah. and. Um, what what are the symptoms of, of CWD in a deer or elk or? Yeah, so you know if they're showing clinical signs, you know visual signs that you can see in an individual, you're going to see you know uh, weight loss. You're going to they're just going to have you know visually look like they have poor body condition. Uh, their behavioral their their behavior is going to change. They may show no no fear of humans. Uh, they may be just standing looking real lethargic. You know walking in circles increased drinking urination you know they just lose muscle control i mean it, it attacks their central nervous system uh, and, and eventually death you know and I, I guess one of the things i want to reiterate or make sure our audience understands is even though a, a deer or elk may not show any of those clinical signs a healthy deer can still have chronic wasting disease right so so how's it how's it transferred you got a sick sick deer how does it how does it get passed from one deer to the next or yeah, elk to good deer question uh there's been you know cwd's been around for you know what is it 40 50 years now mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the research over the last even 5 10 15 years has really helped us gain a better understanding of that i don't think the scientific community fully understands all of the possible transmission opportunities but you know it's believed to be through direct animal to animal contact you know uh contamination that might occur at you know 
feeding sites, mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> water sources through saliva, uh, that prions found in the urine, in the feces. Uh, you know, there's a lot of, lot of research going on right now across the U.S. and Canada trying to have a better answer on that. Uh, there is evidence here, more so, you know, here recently, that infected carcasses. So say if, you know, I'm from Pier here and I go to the Black Hills and I, I harvest a CWD positive whitetail, whatever it is, I bring it back. I don't dispose of that carcass properly. I've got a shelter belt in the back of my <clears throat> yard on the farmstead. I throw it back there. That that carcass has that prion in it, and and that's been shown to to transport, you know, kind of a unnatural transportation right. of that prion across the landscape. It can live in the soil. Uh, it can be transported up through some plants they've documented through research. So that prion wow. is. It's it's a tough little guy and and uh, again we don't know everything we want to know about this disease and the prion and how it's transmitted uh, can it actually be destroyed but uh, that's kind of where we're at right now with our knowledge base on on transmission and as far as we know 100% fatal I mean I mean an individual is gonna die right right but if you have chronic wasting disease uh, your chances of dying at a much younger age are obvious i mean it's, right. it's going to happen whether you die of cwd directly or because it makes you more vulnerable to predation right. walking out onto a highway getting hit by a car whatever it is right. but the disease is always fatal hmm. it's going to progress through your body and create right health situations that you right. just can't survive right yeah uh <clears throat> prevalence in south dakota is that increasing i mean i know we've talked about this internally and stuff it, yeah. it, you know that's a tough question. I unfortunately, Chris, I don't think we have a good handle on what the prevalence rate of CWD is in our wild cervids across the state. Uh, you know, in South Dakota, it's only been detected in you know free roaming deer and elk in uh, Lawrence, Pennington, Custer, and Fall River counties, mm-hmm. and within those counties, it's been confirmed in Custer State Park and Wind Cave National Park. So. Uh, we do have some handle of maybe some preliminary prevalence rates in Wind Cave and Custer State Park, but outside of that, we just have not done enough sampling. Right. You know, we lost federal funding back in 2010 or 11, which really cut back our financial ability uh, to to do as much testing as we'd maybe like to have done. Uh, sure. But some of that might be changing here. Sure. <clears throat> Why, you know, other other than you know, a possible decline in our deer and elk herds. Why should humans be worried? Yeah, so get, getting back to the, you know, hunters and, and their, their concern or, or their interest on populations of, of deer or elk. Mm-hmm. So there's been some research recently conducted in, I believe it's Colorado and Wyoming, that shows once your population reaches a certain prevalence rate, the proportion of those individuals in that population that have CWD, it causes that population to decline. Okay, your reproduction cannot keep up. Can is not additive to what those individuals right. being lost to CWD are. So that that's a concern of ours here in the state and, and other states that have CWD is, you know, not not thinking just right now what is that impact, but what is what is the potential impact of this disease, 10, 25, 100 right. years from now, right. what's it going to look like? And that's kind of the the unknown. Those unknowns are concerning to us. So getting back to the human side of things, uh, 
you know, there there is nothing in the scientific literature that I'm aware of that <clears throat> CWD can be transmitted to humans, uh, you know, by eating a an inf- you know mm-hmm. venison from an infected animal. Now, I'll be honest with you, Chris. If I had a, a deer or elk that tested positive, I I would not I would not eat that myself. I would not feed it to my family right. or give it to my friends. Uh, I would urge on the side of caution. There's been no confirmation of that, but uh, you know, if you you go to the uh, Center for Disease Control, the CDC, and read the information that they put out there for the you know from the public mm-hmm. health side of things, you know, just use common sense, use caution, uh, right. just be smart about it. Right. Hmm. <clears throat> so, CWD, uh, deer, elk, reindeer. Mule deer, moose, moose. I would guess. Uh, can other critters get it, or is it like mad cow? Is that the CWD version for cows? Or? Yeah, so chronic wasting disease, uh, to the best of our ability, is contained to what we call cervids, those species you just rattled off, right. the, deer, the deer family. You know, scrapies is kind of confined, at least what I've what I've read and know of is confined to, to sheep, sheep and mad cow disease to cattle and, and whatnot, and whether... I, I guess I, I can't answer whether those can cross those, right. those species barriers or not. Uh, to my knowledge, they they cannot. But sure, what um, obviously no no cure, uh, really. <clears throat> yeah, there's no known cure to to chronic wasting disease. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess is there even a test uh, on a live critter? Can you test it? There are some tests that are being evaluated, uh, looking at uh, tonsils, uh, looking at rectal biopsies, uh, things of that nature on on live animals. Uh, the only USDA certified test that I'm aware of is the use of the brainstem and lymph nodes uh, that are submitted. We, we, we in, aren't in doing tests. that on a live critter, though, are we? <laughs> not, not doing that on a live critter. Right. And... Uh, you know, if they ever get to the point where a live test is made available, that might be attractive and applicable to, you know, the captive servant right. uh, right. industry, captive elk and deer. But right. to apply a practice like that on a wild population awesome. is expensive, pretty much impractical. Yeah. So I guess now getting into into the meat in the last couple of questions, it, what should a person do if they, they harvest a deer and they're worried about it having CWD? Maybe it skinny maybe it was you know acting funny or maybe they just harvested a deer in one of those counties you just said and they're like hey, you know i i want to be cautious is there anything a hunter can do yeah so we we accept volunteer we don't have any mandatory requirements right now outside of custer state park to submit deer heads uh, that is a requirement for deer and elk hunters in custer state park we want to try to get a better handle on that prevalence rate right. but if you know you're Chris Hall and you shoot a sick looking deer, even a healthy deer in Fall River County, and you want to have it tested, uh, we can work with you on that. We can help you get that, that sample submitted. Uh, Game Fish and Parks has recently made a decision. We will pay for the testing of that animal. Uh, it'll be your responsibility to either work with our staff to have that sample pulled. You pay for the shipping to get it there, and then Game and Fish will cover the test results, and those, hmm. those results will be shared to the department and that individual hunter. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, you see a sick individual like any other wildlife, you know, contact your local conservation officer, your local GF&P office, 
ask us questions. That's why we're here. We're here to help you through that process. Right. So just building on that, I guess, a little bit, what's the department currently doing in regards to CWD? Uh, mandatory testing of any critter shot in Custer State Park. Correct. Yeah, that's a, a current rule in place now. So to back up a little bit, uh, the department made chronic wasting disease a priority when we mm -hmm. went through our department strategic planning here yep. within the last year and a half or so. Uh, so, you know, we, we've got administrative support on that. We're working close with our commission on this. Uh, uh, internal department work group has been put together with a broad array of, of our staff right. members. Uh, I'm kind of helping lead that effort. Uh, uh, we've got a stakeholder uh, group that represents, you know, hunting groups, uh, taxidermists, game processors, other state agencies, the captive deer and elk uh, industry, uh, you name it. I think we got it covered pretty well. I mean, you start talking about CWD and all the things involved with that, it gets to be a pretty complex right. web uh, when you involve the processing of deer, transporting deer, taxidermists. Right. Uh, working with uh, you know DNR to help us provide information available to hunters on where those uh, uh, waste facilities are permitted to accept those. Can we keep those carcasses be, from being thrown out in the landscape and have them properly disposed of? Uh, so we're we're going to be meeting with that uh, CWD stakeholder work group here November twenty eighth uh, coming up here pretty soon. Going to be working with them on. We want to get some feedback from from these folks and help us put together a draft action plan that we can then share with our internal staff, take that out to the public, and we want to have a plan that we can present to our uh, GFMP commission, I believe come uh, April, mm -hmm. uh, for their consideration uh, and adoption. That's a process we go through with our commission on yep. all, all plans. And uh, what might come out of that from any additional regulations or rules, I, I can't answer that yet, Chris, right. but there are going to be some things that we're talking about. Sure. Uh, I mean, I think we want to put in put in any management actions in there that are going to be meaningful, that might help us manage right. this better, yet I think it's got to be somewhat practical and it's got to be acceptable to our hunters right. and other users because they've got to, you know, we've got to have support for this to, to move forward and be successful. So that's going to be the balancing out right. there. Yeah, I mean, you start thinking about, like you said, you know, you know I, I go to the hills and I shoot a deer and I come home and... You know that maybe the head goes to the taxidermist or boiling out a skull or whatever and right. and i'm throwing the carcass you know make sure the carcass is going in the right spot and not just out on one of our game production areas which you're not supposed to be doing yeah. anyway or yeah. or into a shelter belt and, and because that's how it's transferred but yeah. you know it, you start seeing that stuff and you start thinking about all those things that go into it you know meat lockers and 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 you know that you see a load of deer coming from the Black Hills or West River, and they're going up to Siston Horton's meat locker to get yeah. processed, and yeah. what that entails. And I mean, that's that you, you could be talking about some big ramifications. But like you said, it, the public support—it's just like our AIS rules. I mean, it seems like, well, it's not that big a deal, you know. I, I didn't pull my plug, but you know, you could ruin an entire waterway, and, it, and it's a change yeah. in behavior. But it's it's also affecting businesses, and and. Right. So that would be interesting. We'll be we'll be keeping uh, trying to keep everybody out there. Yeah, but I think that I think the challenge here, and I have to challenge myself, not just to think short term. We got to think right. long term on right, this. Right, right. Not just for your kids and their kids, but fifty hundred years from now. I right. mean, what what impact could this disease potentially have for deer and elk? Right. And uh, you know, our 
our department is funded by our sportsmen. And right. if we have sportsmen that, for whatever reason, whether our deer have 50% prevalence rate, are we going to have hunters that want to buy licenses, hunt deer, help support the conservation work that we do uh, with our other conservation partners? I mean, that's that's kind of a big deal. So, yeah. uh, like you said, public support is going to be a big one on this. Yeah. Thanks. Just another scary issue that you're dealing with. I appreciate that. Yeah. Sleep well at night. In the in the meantime, we're going to wrap it up, Switzer, because I know you got a bunch of other stuff to do, and I appreciate it. Uh, what can hunters do for this season just to, you know, to make sure they're doing things right, or at least it's in their in their mind? You know, I've got any things put in the people's minds that, yeah, you know, I, I guess one thing I ask folks to do if they want to learn more about chronic wasting disease is, is go to our website. Uh, we've got some disease information under a tab. I believe it's called Conservation on our website, or just search for chronic wasting disease. Yep. Uh, we've really updated that web page, which I think provides a lot of useful information mm-hmm. for our public and, and our hunters. And, you know, just just use common sense and, and just just try to be, you know, just try to implement your own best management practices, right. you know, you know, disposing of that carcass properly you know not not cutting into uh don't don't use the same knife you use to cut the cut the antlers off to to, you know to debone your deer you know just just be smart about things like that that. so uh you know and if you if you want to have a an individual deer elk tested you know give give us a call uh hop on our website we'll help you get through that process we'll take care uh okay we're gonna wrap it up uh scott frost yay or nay Absolutely. What? Uh, who's? The, where did you play football at? Not at Nebraska. I know. Doan College. Doan College. Yeah. Any, what's What's the most famous Doan College alumni other than you? Other than me, Tommy Frazier was head coach here for a while. Well, I'll take yeah. that. Yeah. I, mean, yeah. I guess he played football too, didn't he? Yeah, Tommy he Frazier. Did. Yeah, okay. he did. Yeah. So. Cool. Well, thanks, uh, Chad Switzer. If you got any calls or got any questions or stuff. Switz is always available to answer, as is, you know, any of our regional field biologists or anything. Um, you know, I know those guys and gals like to like to talk about what they're doing, and especially when it comes to something as important and, and potentially change, game-changing, something like this, getting the right information out. If you got any, you know, got any questions, um, we're always available, and, and I appreciate the time, buddy. Yeah, thanks, Chris. You're about like Johnny Carson sitting down with Yeah, right? I'm, he's probably a little better looking. Thanks, appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. How can time fly just pass by without saying hi to me? How can time fly and just pass by without saying bye to me? Yeah. Thank you, Chris. It's always great to hear all the stories you tell. I love them every week hearing what you have to say and all the interesting guests you have. Today, this is Thea Miller-Ryan, by the way, from the Outdoor Campus, and today my guest is Laura Woods, and Laura is from Woods Roofing and NiceBats.com here in Sioux Falls, and uh, you know when you have a website that's called NiceBats.com, you probably got some nice people who would like bats, 
<laughs> Am I right about that? Do you like you them? You are very right. <laughs> good, good. That's why we called it Nice Bats. <laughs> That's great. Uh, we have so many people that call here, call our office and say, uh, I have bats. What can I do? And, you know, we always tell them you, you need to block them out. Um, people will sometimes call animal control, and we know what happens when animal control goes to get the bats. Um, they don't usually survive that. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's not always a bad thing, but uh, we try to keep as many bats alive as we can around this area because um, we like them. They are great for the environment. They eat insects. They, they do all kinds of good things. So I was really glad to find a place locally here in town that we can refer people to and tell them that, uh, you know, bats are good. So I'm glad you're here. Well, I'm glad I'm here, too. (laughs) Thanks for inviting me. So when people call you and they say, we have a bat problem, where are their bats usually? Well, we'll start where we come and do an inspection. And um, nine times out of ten, they're living in their attic. Mm. Um, Sometimes they'll be living in the soffit outside where they can hear them rustling. But the majority of them will find their way to the attic. And then they'll just stay roosting there during the day. And then at night, they'll fly out and eat bugs. And so it's kind of, you know, a back and forth um, type of, you know, lifestyle that they're living in that home. Right, <laughs> Just like right. the other people that are living there, they, um, when we go to work, they go to sleep. <laughs> right. So they're nocturnal and we're diurnal. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that's really interesting um, because people love that bats eat bugs, but they're scared of bats. And that's kind of, I think, um, sad because bats really aren't that scary. Um, you know, do you have people ask you questions like, will they bite me? Do they get in your hair? Yes, what kind of they answers do. do you have yep. for that? They will ask that. And we like to reassure them that the bat doesn't want to be in that house no more other than to live there and sleep, but mm-hmm. out of their way, um, no more than we want them in there. Cool. Um, so they're just, that's just been a warm place they found to live. Um, so that's not something they're going to seek out and look, like, can I get in that lady's hair or, <laughs> you know, cause some havoc. Mm-hmm. Um, so they... Um, they're just there trying to stay warm and want to go outside and eat at night. So we just reassure them that we'll come, look at their place, check out the house, and just make sure that we can detect where they're coming and going from. And then we'll put up a device to allow them when they want to eat bugs at night, they'll just fly right out, and then they can't get back in. Oh, so, so you're blocking them out yep, while they're blocking, out eating. Yep, while they're out eating. So it's something we do during the day. We set it all up during the day. And then at night is when they go out at, and, you know, go out to fly, and then they don't um, come back in. And we've had people who have, my sister actually, she was had a brand new baby in nursing mm-hmm. and was up at night. And that's when she realized that she had bats. She lived over by McKinnon Park area. Yeah. And um, so we came, we put up the traps, we did all of what we were to do for it. And she said it was so interesting because that next night she could hear him again. Um, but she just heard them, you know, heading out. You could hear the rustling in the yeah. walls and in the ceiling. And she said then they never heard him again. They never came back. Yeah. Now, bats like to come home, though. So what happens when they come back and they can't get back in? Well, do they move out? What they, do they do? They do. And unfortunately, <laughs> mm-hmm. they end up having to go find a new new place mm-hmm. to, to rest. And it may be your neighbors or it may be a tree or a barn or um, something along that lines. But they, will, they won't, like, move to another state to find a place sure. to live. It'll be pretty close to where they're at right now. But they will leave your premises as long as they're locked out of it. 
Interesting. You, know, yeah. you were telling me earlier about a study that someone did on bats where they painted them with fingernail polish. How did that well work? Yeah. Well, they put up a cage outside the house, mm-hmm. and so they knew that they were going to be flying out. So once they flew out, they caught them, and then they fingernail polished them. And then they took them from that cage, and they took them states away. Really? And then released them. And they said the majority of those bats all came back to the exact same house that they were living wow. in. That's yeah. like geese. Geese come back to where they were where they were raised. Yeah. So yeah, you have to kind of interrupt their their um, instincts to come back. Yeah, and a lot of times people will say, you know, well, we just had one or we just had two. You know, it's not that big of a problem. But if you have a female colony that is roosting in your attic, mm-hmm. she is not going to leave, and every year she's going to have a baby. Oh. So let's say if you had three or two. Those moms will all have a baby, and then those babies will stay there, too. So that's how the colonies begin to grow grow faster than what you realize. That's how geese are, too, the same thing. That's so interesting. Nature, it just repeats itself all the time. It's really, <laughs> doesn't it? It's really unique. Yeah. Well, um, and it's, like, what about rabies? People always ask us, am I going to get rabies? There's a bat in my house. Yeah, and the rabies is not um, not as common as people think. Mm-hmm. Um, 1% of the bats that they find will have rabies. Okay, we're going to have to edit this, Robert, just a second. (laughs) Um, I can't make it shut off. Um, We'll just have to wait for it to go to voicemail. Sorry, Robert, you'll have some extra edits this week. Okay, so what were we? What was our sentence the, before um, that we were talking about? The, the rabies. rabies. Okay, so starting sure over with the yeah. rabies part of it. Okay, so what about rabies? People ask us about that all the time. Uh, there's a bat in my house. Am I going to have rabies? Yes. What do you hear about that? Well, it's a very low percentage that has rabies. They say 1% of the bat population will have rabies. Only 1%? Um, yep, but we have had, and I do like to tell people, if you do find a bat in your home and it is not alive, it hadn't you know, mm-hmm. survived, I wouldn't. Um, I would have it tested. You can take it to the vet, or and they'll send it up to Brookings and they will test it and then that'll just reassure you and you do not have to worry about anything they'll call you with the results and then that'll just give you a peace of mind Good. that mm-hmm. you know that everything was okay and nothing you know nothing was wrong with you don't that have bat to go get and, shots and... right yep because if you didn't know a lot of times if you called like the um, you know like a clinic they'll tell you if one's flying in the house a lot of times that you should go get shots sure if you can't find that bat and have a you lot had of to times, have yeah, I have not. <laughs> oh, good. No, <laughs> I have not. <laughs> That's one benefit of knowing a lot about yeah, that. Yes, yeah. So, but yeah, they're just. I mean, they're so so good for the environment. I mean, so good for the environment, and they do a lot of good for you know the mosquito population and all of that kind of stuff. But they just have been protected for a very very long time. So I think that their numbers are really growing, and our housing developments are really growing into the areas where they were living in trees and in old barns. And and so we think like, oh, that's a brand new development and those are brand new houses. They won't have bats. (laughs) But that's not the case. There are houses that people are just moving into that are brand new and that have them. That, That happens with all wildlife because, you know, as we expand as urban 
the urban areas grow to the edges. We're building houses where they lived. So it's like yeah. we're moving in. They're not moving in. <laughs> yeah, they're saying, come on. You yeah, guys, are you guys think I cost? Yeah. I cut down my home. You know? yeah. yeah. I'll show so, you. Exactly. We have that with a lot of different animals. So, again, like we said earlier, nature really uh, copies itself. Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah. this is interesting. And, of course, it's almost Halloween. So it's a good time of year to talk about bats, and I think everybody should dress up as bats for Halloween. What do you think? Well, I think that would be a great idea. (laughs) (laughs) And you can go to our site because we had somebody draw up a nice, cute little bat. So he's smiling and he's... You know, oh. he's a happy bat. So <laughs> You know what? Really, they are cute. Yeah. If you get a close-up look at a little brown bat or a little uh-huh. red bat, we have those in South Dakota, their faces, uh, you know, other than their teeth, their teeth yeah. are a little scary, but their faces, don't they look like little teddy bears? They do, and they their do. fur is as soft as can be. It I is. mean, it is so soft. Yeah. And, yeah, people will say, are they dirty, you know, and mm-hmm. that's one of the things, you know, and they're not. They they groom themselves. They're very, very clean. Right. Um, clean animals. So We have people ask us a lot if bats lay eggs. Oh. And <laughs> that kind of makes us giggle because, you know, yeah. bats are mammals, mammals, so they have yeah. live birth, and they nurse their babies, and they have fur, and they have a backbone like human yeah. beings do, you know, so in some ways we're related, right? Yes, and that, <laughs> and that just shows how each mother will have one baby. It's not like they're having a litter yeah. or, you know, anything along that lines. They just have one pup that they're going to tend to and teach how to fly and um, and take care of. That is so. super cool information. Yeah. Thank you so much for oh, coming here today. Absolutely. I love it. Good. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about bats more. I'll have you back. And okay. We'll do some summer bat talk maybe. Well, and I, like I had said too, you know, I'm hoping sometimes in the winter we'll um, have people call and we will go capture one for them. Super. And, um, and if we can keep it in the shop and feed him and keep it warm, yeah. you know, then maybe we can bring him in and, and show you. <laughs> yes, we could do a bat release when it when it's warm enough yeah. outside. Yep, yep, that oh, would be yeah. great. We'll definitely tell our listeners about that if okay. we do a bat release, and we'll get some videos so you can watch it on our YouTube channel too. Oh, absolutely, and I can send you too. You know, um, some video of you know some of the bats we have with night camera. You know, night of them camera. flying oh, cool. in and out of the of the roof line. So it is a pretty neat thing to see. Uh, that makes me really excited. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Well, so, thank you. And absolutely. we're going to turn this back to Chris, who's going to tell you guys about some of the things that Game Fish and Parks has coming up in the near future. Hope you enjoyed learning about bats today. I love bats. So uh, happy Halloween and uh, smile the next time you see a bat because they're eating the insects that bite you. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Without seeing how to me, I've been time just past by without seeing by to me. Well, there it is. Big, big thanks to the always vivacious, always loquacious Thea Miller Ryan from the Sioux Falls Game Fish and Parks Outdoor Campus East. If you're down in that neck of the woods and you aren't taking advantage of that awesome programming and fun stuff they got going out there, shame on you. You should get down there and see the gang. They've always got cool stuff going on. In fact, I think last night they even had a fishing rod building class, which 
super, super jelly that I didn't get my hands on that class and go to that. So we're going to put a wrap on this edition of the South Dakota Game Fishing Parks podcast and blast. Uh, like we said, and you know, it's November. All the deer seasons are going on. Uh, we've got, um, you know, migration is in full swing. Um, get out and enjoy the outdoors. I've even heard of some stuff going on with some ice fishing, which makes me super jealous as well. But uh, get out there and enjoy our outdoor resources that make South Dakota so awesome. If you've got any questions or anything, um, you know, reach out to one of our South Dakota Game Fishing Parks offices. Give us a call here in Pier. Heck, you can even ask for me, Chris Hull. And uh, if I don't know the answer, I'll find it for you. But um, just, a, just a couple quick reminders. You know, if, if you got permission to get on some land, make sure you shut the gate. Keep that landowner happy. Pick up any trash and stuff. Um, Send in your pictures. Uh, send in your stories through us, through social media. Uh, use the hashtag uh, SD in the field. Um, we always like hearing those stories and seeing those pictures. Get out and have some fun. Um, this is the time of the year why, uh, where we can celebrate our state and, and its outdoors and uh, be who we are and not have to apologize for it. So, uh, Thanks to you, my listeners, our listeners. I appreciate you very much. Share this with your friends and family. If you got an idea for a podcast um, guest or topic, share it with us on social media or uh, find us, send us an email. Chris.Hull, H-U-L-L, at state.sd.us. Uh, just share me your ideas and I'll try to get it on. I'm not sure where we're going next couple weeks. I'm going to try to get Benny Spies on the program. I got uh, a couple of really good dog trainers that uh, I've been remiss on not having them on already and, and talking about training and not only that, but nutrition and exercise and, and how we deal with dog injuries, all that kind of stuff. So thanks for listening. Talk to you in a couple of weeks. It's